Let me show you how it's done. Hello, folks. We are back with the Drops podcast. Now, it's one of the great things about Tam and I is that we travel, we go places, we show up. And sometimes when we show up, we meet cool people. And in this case, for me, I went to a mixer for Gangels. So Gangels is a network of angel investors who invest in various companies. And I met this guy named Davis Ubar. And it was so interesting because what I really liked about him was that he was a dad. And I was like, I'm a new parent. I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about being a parent. If you have a question on your mind, such as how do I not screw up my kids? You just sometimes ask people randomly and then they give you really good answers. And so that's what David did for me when we first met. And so I'm so happy to have you on the podcast, David. Let me tell them a little bit about why you are here. David's mission is better products faster. And so with strategic implementation of the Lean Startup Method, this mission has led to major valuation increases for a quickly growing list of more than 30 technology companies. His strategies are becoming the standard for how technology companies scale while continuing to deliver products that impact the lives of their customers. He began his career in R&D, and now he leads teams in more than seven countries for clients that ship products for tens of millions of customers. Some of his career highlights include building products with more than 600 billion monthly page views, building hardware in the operating system for an augmented reality device, assisting Lynda.com in their $1.5 billion sell to LinkedIn, advising the Walt Disney Company on Disney+, Plus, founding two companies, and serving as the advisor and executive for three unicorns. Before we also get started, I just want to quickly say thank you a lot for Disney+, Plus because I did not know that it was going to be one of my go-to streaming services, but it is. I really love it. And it also seems to know exactly what I want to do sometimes, which is actually very hard. Like, it's very surprising how many people do not do personalization well. So, David, again, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here. And thank you for the introduction. And, and like, also love to talk about the kids. Like, we're talking a lot of stuff today, I'm sure. But of all this stuff, the kids stuff is the most important. Exactly. And I think actually maybe that's how we can get started. Because one of the things I thought was very interesting when we first had lunch is that you were telling me about your career journey. And I was like, it really don't make sense. I was like, how did you end up in this position? And I think maybe if you can couple that with like how you end up in this position and you also happen to raise some pretty well-adjusted kids, I think that'd be a great place to start. Yeah, those are both two different questions in the same question, right? So how did I end up in this position? So you hinted at it before. I started my career doing research and development in AI and machine learning at a military-owned think tank. And that's what I thought I wanted to do. I was like really excited. I'm going to do some research. We're going to, we're going to move the where science is. <clears throat> and uh, that was what I wanted to do. But I found out that I don't like doing research. Research is you write a paper, you present at a conference, a couple hundred people listen to it. And if you're Newton or Einstein, you've changed the world. And it turns out I'm not Newton or Einstein. But engineering is about building products that people actually use. And that I could do. And that I could do and have an effect on the market. That I could do and build something that I can go, hey, mom. This is what I did. And it wasn't really about, about talking to my mom in particular, but being able to build something that you could describe. So when I was doing research and development, AI and machine learning, we were doing neural networks and some really advanced stuff and sigmoids and layers networks and all that stuff. And this is actually, I was living in DC at the time. And I would go to parties. My wife was working in Capitol Hill. I'd go to those Capitol Hill people and they would ask me what I would do. And I would describe it and like they had, there was... No, they had no idea what the hell I was talking about. 
But when I was building products and you're focusing on what value you create, me, that's way more motivational. And to me, that's an organizational, you can organize your thinking and your philosophy and your groups and your departments around that. And so I started as an engineer, then I was a manager and a director, then CTO, then chief product officer, but it was all about building something tangible. And so that's how I got it because I want to have an effect on the world. Now, back to the kids thing. So here's where that tie-in goes is I say to my, I said to my, I've said to my kids, I say to my kids is do something of value to somebody. Money is, you got to be smart, but money is a side effect of doing that. If you create value for someone else, and if you're smart, you can figure out the economics. If you're concentrating on how do I create value just for myself, the world will tend to want to avoid you. And so talking to my kids about, it's a lot like a product roadmap. Like everything on the product roadmap is a bet. Some bets you're going to get right. Some bets you're going to get wrong. That's okay. As long as you're trending positive. I say to my kid, my kids, I have three daughters. Try your hardest. Some it's not going to work. But if you continually try your hardest, my kids are smart and they're doing stuff that they're motivated to do. You're going to trend positive. It's the same as product roadmap. So kids are, I don't want to, I don't want to make my kids into little automatons, but the same principles about adding value and getting value as a side effect of that are the same principles. I got a question just based on that about adding value. And I like that kind of ethos for life. How do you add value? I remember this, one of the things that we talked about when we were learning agile and these agile transformations is about each role is about adding value to the process. And so it's a good way to look at things. How would you describe like a wasteful startup? When you hear some of these ideas of startups coming out in the market and you're like, are you really solving a problem? Is that where you put all of your ingenuity into solving some of these things that are very copycat? For example, the rapid delivery race that was happening. How do you feel about that? Would you describe coming across startups that add value or don't add value? How do you distinguish or put them into buckets? They're not adding value. Then I think their days are probably numbered. Right. And so I'll start by asking the CEO, who do you serve? What problem do they have? How are you solving that problem? And if they can't answer that, or if their answer is, there's a market here that, that I can leverage to generate a lot of money out of. That's my goal is I'm going to generate a lot of money out of this market. And I'm going to be really wealthy doing this. Congratulations to you, I suppose. But uh, I can't help you. And maybe you might actually get really wealthy. That's all right, I suppose. I can't help you because I can't build a formula that's consistent for building a company of value, right? The, the shareholders care about, are you building a sustainable company that has moats around it, um, that's going to that's gonna generate revenue and cash flow and profit and all that stuff? If your focus is, I'm going to make a lot of money as soon as I can, the system is not. The system is going to spit you out. I can't help you. Agreed. 
big question is, how do you know up front? Because there's no pitch deck that ever comes across any investor's desk that says, we're just here to make a lot of money. It never reads like that. There is always some hypothetical problem to solve, and it's very fluffery in a lot of ways. What is your method for determining value. B and I on this podcast, if anybody takes a listen to just any randoms, we are very good at defining value and saying beforehand, there's no value there. This is going to fall. Right? We talk about PMF product market fit. It is lacking value in one of these areas. How do you yourself, when you're looking at these ideas, how do you determine uh, up front defining what that value is? So you can say the market is going to prove you wrong eventually. I want to know a few things. One is what proof points do they have that this is a problem for somebody? What proof points do they have that the market is big enough? What proof points do they have that, uh, that what they're doing is unique and is defensible? And then, by the way, they're not going to score 100% on any of those. So my next question is, how are you going to validate your assumptions? And how are you going to do that cheaply? And how do we know in a tangible way? And so those are the questions that I'm going to ask. Now, if you're doing a pre-seed or seed stage investment, some of those are very highly speculative, highly speculative. And a bit of it is going to be uh, spray and pray. Like a lot of pre-seed investors just throw money out a bunch of places and just see what develops and then ask those questions. That's fine if you've got a lot of capital to put out there. And then you're believing in the jockeys, not the horses, as they say. But for things that, that are a little more mature, that people have been around, then it's like, who's actually using your product? What have you done that's gone out there? What have you done that's validated? That's better for, call it seed, A series, things like that. You should be able to see forward momentum and progress. And the concept that I talked about before, that everything on the roadmap is a bet. How did those bets pay off? And by the way, also, like, how did you structure the bets? One of the things I suggest is saying everything on the roadmap should have an epic statement. We believe by doing this feature for this user, they will achieve this kind of value, and we'll know when we see this metric move. And so I would ask an entrepreneur of a company that's actually building product out in the market, how your bets been? Do you, do you even have a structured bet or are they just, you're just doing arbitrary stuff? If you're just doing arbitrary stuff, what are you going to do to figure out whether what you're doing makes sense? If you're having structured bets, which I'm suggesting is how you're doing. Once again, I don't expect everyone to be 100% correct, but those are the proof points that I would look for. So I have an interesting follow-up to that too, because one of the things that I think are like very fascinating, because along with this, like what Tam said about the pitch deck, like in the pitch deck, you're not going to see something specifically that says, I lack character, for instance. But I find, especially like for myself, when I'm talking to founders, when I'm talking to just humans, like it's pretty apparent for me, like, oh, there's a, there's something here. It's like, there's some energy that's quite wrong about this person or whatever. And so I'm kind of curious about you going, like kind of continuing with this idea is that through your career, I'm sure you've met people where you're like, I met this person. I knew they were going to win. Like from the very first time I had a conversation with them, I knew they were going to do well. And I'm sure conversely, you also met some people that as soon as you met them, you were like, no, absolutely not. Can you tell us a little bit more about those experiences and how you kind of distinguish or what you've covered over time, things that you can add on and say, like, this is how I can distinguish between these types of individuals? Yeah, sure. Um, 
I'm going to think about some examples, and I might name the positive people in the positive examples, and maybe not name the ones in the negative ones. But uh, the people that I don't believe in, I can bottom out with questions. I can ask them questions that they can't answer. They can't answer in a consistent way. It's so, by the way, it's okay that I might be able to ask you a question you can't answer. But then it's about: Are you? Do you come across? Do you come across and say, "Oh, that's a good question. I don't know." Let me go think about that. Or do you try to cover up? If you're trying to cover up, then there's some dishonesty there. On the other hand, people that I believe in are, they're transparent, they're authentic. This all sounds very fluffy, right? So they're transparent, they're authentic, and they're passionate about what they do. So I'm going to talk about Elon Lee. So I don't know if you ever, if you play the game Exploding Kittens. Elon is one of is the one of the founders of that company. I've known him since he was twenty twenty one. He was still in college. Uh, he cares about games. Like he deeply cares about games. When they were building Exploding Kittens, he did it like on a card deck. And I played like the original like fifty two cards, like aces, queens, kings, that kind of thing. He cared about it. He was on a mission to build a great game. By the way, uh, tabletop games are a little different than technology, right? There's a big market, but you don't know if someone's going to play your game. But he cared about making a game. And then when he, and I'm going to screw up the number, uh, they had the most number of supporters in a Kickstarter ever. I think it was, I don't know, I think they collected $7 million, but I don't know how many supporters they had. But they were passionate about having that 30 days of Kickstarter, creating value for people to want to do the Kickstarter. Like he was thinking about how do I make this fun from beginning to end? Now, he is, he is a revenue source. Like you go to Kickstarter and buy stuff from him. He was making money. But he thought about it, and he's very creative about the way he thought about it. So it's a little bit hard to answer the question in a very, here's the three features I look for. But I do look for, are they, are, is the person authentic? If I ask them a hard question, do they try to cover or do they think it through with me? Or do they say, I'll get back to you about that? And then do they fulfill their commitments? There's something, there can be something kind of slimy that your spidey sense just goes, yeah, you know what? Something doesn't feel right here. You know, it's so interesting. I always call those people like the snake oil salespeople. Right, because you know people who are up there are like, there's no way that this thing is going to cure my acne. There's no way this yeah. is going to make me grow hair. You know, it's like that doesn't even make sense what you're saying, and so I totally get it. And something that I think, especially, so I spent a lot of I spent a lot of my career outside of tech working with nonprofits, and I found it most in nonprofit work, surprisingly. I think primarily because in, in nonprofit work, because there's been this like weird confusion about what talented like whether talented people work in nonprofit or not right because there's a natural thing where it's like oh working in a profit you must not want to make money it's like or you can't make other money that's why you work in a profit but the reality is that some of the best people i've ever worked with work in nonprofits like they've actively chosen to be poor i'm sorry that's the best way yeah, to describe right, right. it that they've actively decided to do it and it's not because they're not geniuses right but within that industry i've seen so many of these like really like like you really don't have the substance of this person over here and so it becomes even more glaring there so i, I really think that that's kind of way that i is that your red flag what's your red flag be 
So my red flag is, is that this is almost always happens with these people. So let's say we're going through a conversation and most of the conversation is going well. At some point, we might have a slight disagreement. And instead of that person having a robust conversation and saying, oh, well, the reason I have this particular opinion about this thing, they change to whatever your opinion is. And they're like, oh, actually, you've completely moved. That's like, there's no way that someone can completely move you from an opinion in a conversation. It's like, we, yeah, and like that is completely sketchy to me, right? Because like, unless I have a fact, unless it's like a fact, right? So it's like, is the sky blue? And you thought that this whole time it was gray. And I could say definitively, science actually says it's blue. That makes sense that you might move. But these are like, moral questions of like how do you what do you think of this particular thing that could go either way and then they completely change their opinion to whatever you said as a huge flag for me i had two examples that re- yeah i had two examples of that recently i've been asked to be on the board of directors for a nonprofit, and i said and so i was having coffee with the two chair people the board the people led the board and the ceo and i said i have three criteria to be on this board. And I said, I need to make sure this organization is doing good work. I'm be given my time for free, which I'm like, I think the organization is probably a good organization. I was kind of excited about, but I want to make sure it's doing good work. I want to make sure that other board members are adding value, work together. And I want to make sure I can add value. And uh, the CEO of the nonprofit said, Okay, great. We're going to bring you to it, this organization runs uh, group homes, and said so we're going to bring you to a group home. And I said, "How do I meet some of the people?" I'm simplifying the conversation a little. I'd like to come to a board meeting. And they said we can't do that, but here's how we can have you meet the other board members. And so, in that case, the the CEO of this nonprofit and the board members understood what I was saying, and there was no resistance. And if there had been a resistance, I would think the resistance would have been like, we disagree with with these three things that you're saying, David, to make sure that the organization makes sense and uh, the board members can add value and you can add value. I'm sure they would have, if they had pushed back on that and a good reason, that would have been okay too. But they, they were like, okay, I get it. Here's what we can do to help you solve the problem. That's one. The second is I'm working with this company in Australia and uh, we're talking about some I'm trying not to reveal too much information about a significant product they're going to do. And there was video they wanted to put on it. And I said to the product manager, I don't think that makes sense. I don't think that's consistent with the offering of the product for the users. And he showed me some examples of other products that were similar. And I said, I don't think that makes sense for this market. And then he explained it to me and why it made sense for this market. And I was like, oh, okay. He gave me real data. He liked what you were saying. Give me real data that was significant. And I was like, okay, I believe you. And then he had a roadmap. And his roadmap was like in the first release was going to take months and months. It was really big. And I said, you're investing way too much to prove your thesis here. And he said, well, we had this conversation about why this they were replacing one product with another one and why he had to have every feature from the old product to the new one. And the reason they're replacing is because the old product sucked. And I said, what about if you had a small product that worked well? Would that show user value? Would users like that better? He said, yes. Yeah. So I said to him, what happens if you released a small thing and got market feedback? And so we had this conversation and he said, he did what I did. He's like, 
oh, I get your point. Let me do that. But we were able to have this logical step-by-step conversation in both cases. One, he convinced me. One, I convinced him. But it wasn't on fluff. And he didn't just go like, I was, I'm running product on an interim basis. You're running product here, so you're my boss, so I'm just going to say yes. I wouldn't have liked that. He had a, an intellectual argument on both sides, and he won one and I won one, but it was just based all on logic. It wasn't based on roles and power. You know, I always tell people, I think a lot of people think that things get done when people agree, and I actually disagree. I think the best things get done when there's actually friction. It's like, I disagree with you. I completely disagree with you, actually. And so, like, we're going to have to have a debate. And that's how you spark fires. That's how you spark really great creativity, really great ideas. And so there's exactly what I mean. And so that's why I don't trust people when I'm like, wait, you disagreed with me? There's no way. It's like, there's no way you should agree with me. Like, you should be able to have a robust conversation. And actually, so David, I think one of the things you're kind of getting to in that conversation, too, is your proprietary idea around build better products faster. And so maybe you could kind of get a little bit more, a little bit more flavor around that and what that means and how maybe even in that scenario, that's what you were trying to get that person to see. Yeah, great. Uh, so me, better products faster are exactly what you were saying, Dave. It's how do we have that, how do we have that debate among ourselves about what we should build? How do we get the smallest thing out and let the market tell us that whether we're right or wrong? People have this philosophy that product managers are supposed to know everything about the product or often they say it this way often engineers have that philosophy product manager you tell me what the market wants i'm just going to go build it i am giving i am injecting all the responsibility about building the right thing as an engineer now i don't mean to just put this all this on engineers but i come with the assumptions that product managers are flawed humans like everybody else and so what to build better products faster is what do we believe is directionally correct? How do we build this? This is just general lean startup stuff. Just a lot of companies don't know how to do it. How do we build the smallest implementation? How will we know when in the market, whether we're specifically correct or not? How do we do that as quickly as possible, release as quickly as possible, get that feedback? And then how do we reconsider what do we do next? It's that getting that loop short and tight. That's building. That's about building better products faster. And then, how do you align that with the strategy of the company? Sorry, I'm not giving very specific examples because just the confidentiality. But I'm working with a company that doesn't really have a good strategy. So in this case, we got the loop tight between product management, engineering, and release and getting feedback. But I'm saying to the CEO. Your people are operating or floating in an environment. Let's work on your strategy. So better products faster is having a thesis of here's who we serve. Here's how we're going to serve them. Here's that loop between product manager engineering. Product manager conceives of something. We build it. We get that feedback. And then we reevaluate at all times. And so that means having the right people in the right places. Product managers having to understand something about the architecture they're building so they can make some choices. Engineers saying to product managers, my job is to build a thing, but help me understand why you want to build that. Oh, I could I could do that 80% and 20% of the time. It's that engaging them being on the same team is about building better products faster. 
And so it's the, the strategy, the people, the process, the communication. That's what's important. David, it's interesting you say that. I've saw I've seen the same things in my career. I was a former product manager before that, an analyst, and then a strategist, basically bridging this gap between strategy and execution, seeing the same thing. You can tighten up this very programmatic process of agile, right? Get this continuous feedback loop. You got them. You can get them really tight. And still, they're just delivering the wrong thing to the market faster, right? Because strategy is still the gap. And I think that ties into what we were just talking about before. Like, how do you know when something is not going to add value and you're like looking for the red flags? One of my biggest red flags is someone who believes in their own bullshit. Not someone who's spewing bullshit, but the person who believes it internally for real themselves will say this layman is bullshit, but in design, we call this design fixation. You are so fixated on this idea that you can't see anything else. You have no possibility of anything else, which is why you go full throttle into agile and deliver anyway, no matter what this feedback loop says. I believe I made this bet some years ago that a lot of these companies that were prioritizing this agile transformation was really just prioritizing their method of delivery, but they were suffering in this area of strategy. And a lot of that has to do with what you'll see out in the founder's market. But these people come from companies, right? They get that behavior comes from somewhere. And I've seen it at the VP level. Companies, enterprises have a lot of money. Um, Somebody executive wakes up, they have this idea, this brilliant idea, and they have enough money and resources to put a project team together to say, go explore this. But what they really hear is go tell me I'm right. And that starts this chain reaction of let's come up together with a business case that satisfies the sponsor of this business case. And this is how we move forward. Have you seen anything like that? Or what do you attribute to this still, this lack of aggressiveness between developing uh, strategy and the execution of agile, which we're getting really good at, but we're still seem to be missing on what is the right thing to build? Yeah, so that's, that's a, that happens a lot. And that's, it's hard to, the point, the thing you point out to him is it's hard for an employee in the company to tell the executive, that doesn't make any sense at all. And that, that happens quite a bit. Uh, The thing that I ask is how will you know if you're right? And what is the value of if you're right? So it happens because Agile is often something that happens in product management engineering, to your point. It's about, oh, how are we efficient in what we do? How do we run really fast? What often happens, and this is why I talk about being effective, not efficient, is are we doing the right thing? And Agile, that's why I try to bring Agile methodologies or philosophies to the executive level. It's easy if you're an executive and you have a lot of capital to say, I'm going to test this and this and this, or I'm going to try this and this and this. I just woke up. I think I'm brilliant. I had a great shower. I'm going to, let's just do this. By the way, it's super frustrating for the people in the organization. The way to combat that is to say, we don't have infinite capital. We can't test everything. We're going to have to make some choices. Why is this the best choice? And how will we know? Agile is really good about doing retrospectives at the end of sprints. What people often forget about is doing retrospectives at the end of product releases. 
We had this bet on the roadmap. How'd the bet do? Did we underperform? What happened? Let's talk about what do we do differently? Do we overperform? Oh, that's interesting. We performed better than we expected. What did we learn from that? And so bringing that idea of retrospective up to uh, the executive level, starting with how does that fit? How is what you're suggesting fit in the strategy? Let's put it on the roadmap. Let's do the retrospective is part of the solution that I worked for the CEO once and he was brilliant. He, every day he had five good ideas and he would come and say, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. One day I had to say to him that I'll call him Fred. Fred, that is a great idea. That's in fact, your 10th great idea this week. Help me understand how this fits in with the other, with your other great ideas. And so at some point, it's up to the people that work for that executive to say, this seems like bullshit to me. Now, I said it in a nicer way, the CEO, but you've presented me with a problem of these 10 great ideas. I've got to pick. Help me think through this problem. Now, I will say fairly that, you no, know, and in turn, we are consultants. It is easier for me to say this to a CEO or an executive than an employee. I tell people we're pre-fired. We're never getting a raise. We're never getting promoted. We don't have any tech, so it's easier for us to say. But when you see this pattern of this executive coming and having ideas that aren't tethered to the fundamental strategy or mission of the company, and there's a constrained resource like capital, that's where you have that conversation. How does this fit in the constrained number of things that we can do for the year. Let's have this conversation. If you have a if you have an executive that that, that continually says, this is great, we should just do it. Help me understand why. There's some people, by the way, you will not solve this problem with. There are some people that will just always be coming to the next shiny object. Fixated. Call that fixated. fixated. That's exactly right. That's right. That's exactly right. But there's others that you can have a logical argument with that we have, you know, we have just fixed amount of capital, fixed amount of time, whatever that fixed resource is, and say we need to make some decisions. And that's the way that that as an employee, you can have the conversation. As a consultant, it's easier to have the conversation. I can say, here's things that we've seen. Let me tell you, you're heading for you're headed right into a train coming at you. I'm really happy that you said that because it's so interesting because I was telling, I think Tam and I both have come to the conclusion that it's very unlikely that our first choice will ever be to work for someone again. And I will say majority of the reason I feel that way is because I realize I get a lot more respect as a consultant than I do as an internal employee. And in fact, I think that's part of what's wrong with modern employment is like, why do you have to pay me a lot more for me to come in as a consultant? when I could actually be your employee and be happy and actually just work there. Yeah. And so I, I kind of say, so obviously you've been doing it at an even higher level, like a much higher level than even we've been doing in our career. Why do you think that there is such a bias towards like outside consultants or other people instead of either a 
thinking about your hiring and hiring better if you don't really trust your employees, right? Francis is a great example, or B, entrusting the people that you've actually hired to do the work well. And part of the reason I asked this question is that, you know, our listeners are primarily other founders and things like that. And so I would like to have them hear from someone who's in this role, who comes in and helps people be awesome to kind of understand what you, as you look at teams, how they utilize or underutilize their team members. Novelty can be shocking. A consultant is novel. They come in, they see some stuff, they say things in a different way from a different, in a different perspective than you've seen before. New employees are novel. Employees that have been there for a long time, people just fit into habits, right? And so people are just used to each other. It's hard to say things that are new or novel, or even see things that are new. When an employee comes to work for me, I say to them, we do a lot of things wrong that I can no longer see. We're going to meet in 90 days. I want you to write down all the things you broke in. And by the way, about day 91, you may not see them either. I want those new eyes. Consultants always have new eyes, and the relationship with the consultant is always new. With an employee who's been working there for three or four years, the relationship isn't new. And, the, and that person fits into the environment, right? A consultant doesn't fit in the environment. The other thing is the advantage a consultant has is, is I've been doing this at, the, at internal. We've been around for nine years, seen a lot of patterns in a lot of companies, so I can pattern match. I have a lot more patterns than an employee who works someplace for four or five years and goes to the other one. So that's helpful too. But novelty is really helpful. And it's, you know, it's hard for people. The other thing is that, okay, we're going into a technology recession or we're in a technology recession and it's harder for people to get jobs. People should be less afraid of losing their job, especially if you're an engineer. Now, don't be an ass, right? Be a good human, but you should be less afraid of saying things that you think are true to the people you work for. Because your switching cost is a lot smaller than you think. And at least for me, and I think it's generally true, I want to work with people who tell me things that I did not see that are interesting. I used to have this guy come into my office, he'd shut the door back when people had offices. And I'd go, oh, crap. I'm in trouble now. He's going to tell me something. That I, and invariably, this guy's name was Eric. And very much, he'd come in, shut the door, and I'm like, oh, crap, what did I screw up? It takes a little bit, of, like, Eric had a little bravery to him. And he wasn't right 100% of the time. I didn't care about him being right 100% of the time. But he was a great employee because he saw things I did not see, and he would tell me. Those two attributes, see and tell. I have a heuristic for signs to watch out for after seeing this so many times. It's uh, a person who asks no questions has already made up their mind. And these are people to stay away from. They are fixated. They are immovable in some way. And I think that they lead to a lot of these things that you're talking about. Um, just bad ideas that go out into the market. But that's my heuristic yep. now. Someone who asks zero questions, fixated. I think that's right. But there's one other thing I would say. As a supervisor, a boss, a manager, call it what you will, 
if you have people that work for you that aren't asking questions, you need to go and say, hey, Jill, Susan, whomever. You didn't say anything. You can say it nicer than that. What do you think? Sometimes you, because you're in a powerful position based on your title, you need to sometimes seek it out. You'll have people that are scared of you, that are shy, that whatever you say has more power because your title. You got to go and ask. Like I, I want my people to say things to me. If they don't say it, I'm going to ask. And by the way, here's my thesis: If I'm hiring you, you're smart. If you're not smart, you're not going to stay here. So by definition, because you're staying here, I think you're smart. I want to hear you, and I'm going to seek it. And I will. And I've said that to people like. You worked here for a while. That means I don't think you're stupid. Because if you were stupid, I would have fired you. So now that we've established that I have respect for you, tell me what you think about this. You know what's so interesting is I think we're starting to really start to piece together what an awesome human that we believe in who's going to do a successful, going to create a successful company is someone. Uh, they have healthy debates, right? And we've got that. It's no snake oil, per- snake, snake oil person who changes their mind. They're not flimsy. They listen very thoroughly, and if they don't hear all voices, they seek out that person to hear that voice. And I think that's very significant because also the thing that you, like what we're also implying is that this is a person who's probably also pretty inclusive, right? So this is a person who looks around them and goes like, "You, I've brought you around this space, and I'm bringing you here because I want us to be excellent. And I think that that's a very important thing to kind of note there, because I think it's very important to think about that when you think about how to create a billion-dollar business. Now, so David, like this is a great transition. You have supported many billion-dollar businesses now, right? You have a little bit of a track record mm-hmm. here. And so tell us a little bit what that's like. You know, as you know, so some of them, you literally started from with them before they, were, they hit those numbers. Other ones maybe came a little bit later. And so tell us a little bit about that experience what does it look like to work with these type of high-flying companies, shepherding them, the things that you urge them to watch out for? And then I think maybe then only ending up into acquisition, because I think, I don't know many people who have been a part of a billion-dollar acquisition. A lot of people, I've known more people who've actually been a part of IPOs than an acquisition. I think that's a little bit of a nuance here, too. So yep. give us a little bit of color on how this all works. The, uh, it, the leaders of particularly if they were founders and built these companies up. I've worked with several unicorns where it was founder-led still at the multi-billion dollar stage. They have a vision, they care, and they communicate it consistently. This has been my experience. So I'll talk, I'll talk about Linda at lynda.com. Okay, Linda was a real person. And... When I started consulting to them, I was running engineering on an interim basis for her. And about two weeks in, I got this flame mail from Linda. And she said, I went unsubscribed from our email list, and she's still getting marketing emails from us, WTF. Except she didn't abbreviate. And I was like, lady, I just got here. Don't know. It's a marketing email. Like, really? This is what you're, this is my internal monologue. Like, this is what you're concerned about. But she's the founder of the company and running it and the whole thing. And she and her husband owned 80% of the company. So I went and did some research and I came back to her and I said, turns out, Linda, there's two marketing email lists. And when you unsubscribe from one, you don't unsubscribe from that. I'm still thinking, I cannot believe that she's 
concerned about this. At this point, they were doing about $75 million a year in revenue. They're going 50% year over year, huge margins. I'm like, really? You folks? I said to her, I said, Linda, by the way, how do you know about this? Like, how do you know this woman unsubscribed from an email list and still getting marketing emails? She said, I read every email that people write that come into our company. She said, our value here is I'm creating educational opportunities for people that didn't go up the normal track. I want to make sure that our users get value, the people that create our courses get value, and our employees get value. Everybody in the ecosystem. I read every email that comes in. My attitude went from, really, you care about this? To like, oh my God, you care about this. She was really inspirational because she was that thing I said before about delivering value to other people and getting revenue as a side effect of that. She was concerned about that. And because of that, she could communicate that to the whole company. And you were either on the mission or you were off the mission. And you were off the mission. That was fine. You just didn't work at the company. And people that I found founders that create unicorns are like that. They have a mission. It's clear. They live it. And they make sure everyone in the company lives it. At Disney, it's a little different because when I was – when we were consulting Disney, when I was consulting to Disney, it was way way after Walt Disney was dead. Founder wasn't there. But people there did care about creating value, but it's more Disney's more complicated. There's more people, there's more bureaucracy, there's more politics. And the conversation there was just about clarity. And in that case it was me bringing clarity to the executives that I was working with about how were they going to grow the Walt Disney Company by creating value. It's the same, it's the same theme. Sometimes in the case where it's a large corporation like that, people have forgotten that, uh, I'm not saying this is true of the Walt Disney Company, but people have forgotten that the company is only sustainable if it continues to create value. And redrawing that mission to say, you can generate more revenue by doing these things for others, for your customers, for others. And then in helping them use that as a way to, I'm going to state this in a way that, that I don't love, creating political power around the organization to say, I'm going to help the company achieve its economic objectives, to achieve the objectives of other people. And people in Department A or Department B that don't agree with me, here's how aligning this way will create value for all of us. And then having that debate be you talked about, that clear and open debate, and what you talked about, Tam. And I find the people that align around that, that then can align the company mission, bring the other people in with them. I really, really appreciate that. It's so fascinating because when I think about some of the greatest leaders, I'm not gonna, I normally always say Tim Cook, but this one I think is Steve Jobs. So Steve Jobs, as far as I know, no one will ever say that he was a nice guy. No one's going to say he walked into a room and I felt comfortable and safe. They were like, when he walked in a room, I felt like I needed to step up and be the best version of myself because Steve was going to ask me something that was so specific to my, my role or what I should be doing that if I wasn't on point, I knew I might get fired. And I think mm -hmm. that, so in some ways, it's not like all lovey-dovey, like, you know, but his level of acumen and excellence, it was pervasive through all of Apple. And I think that's what's really interesting. Accountability, yes. 
the to rest leaders. Yes. Right. To but he fault. held yes. everybody accountable, right? Exactly. And that's what I love, right? Because like he embodied the mission. And so then he was like, I everyone I go into, you be you have to be saying the exact same thing that I'm saying. You have to be responsible for the exact same thing that we set as our standard. And I think that's actually, I think in some ways what you're kind of saying is that's the difference between a billion dollar company and every other company, right? I remember every company of mine that I was just like, honestly, I kind of love working here. I couldn't tell you what the mission was. I couldn't tell you what the core values were. I knew that what my job was, I knew what my job was is to do whatever the thing was that they told Mm -hmm. me to do. But the only companies I know what the mission and values were in my entire career, Sprout Social, Netflix, and Apple. I cannot tell you at all about any of the other companies in my career. But I will say one thing. I believe a CEO's job is to define value. That is the one sole purpose of a CEO. A CTO's job is to build value. And I will say that I think that Steve Jobs did an excellent job at that. And I think that this is a, probably the differentiator between companies, let's call these apex innovators, those uh, that, that do it consistently, is they are very good at consistently defining value, even if that value changes. A lot of people like to give a lot of flack to Tim Cook in the way that he's running Apple. He has just defined value differently. He's more of an experience and a service provider is what Apple is, but he is defining value differently. And he, I think he also does a good job of defining value for the company. They are executing on that. Yeah, I, and I agree with what you guys are both saying. And I'm going to give you two, I'll give you two examples. I'll give you a, a Steve Jobs example. So I was at Apple meeting with the executives this is after Steve was gone, when Tim was running it, I was meeting with the top executives and Tim walked in the room for a minute, but I was talking to one guy. Uh, I won't tell you, his, I won't say his name. And when Steve came back, Apple had, I don't know, 10 X products that they had, they have now. And uh, he was having everyone come and brief him on the product and decide whether the product was going to live or die. And so this one guy was uh, in the elevator with Steve, just happened to be in the elevator with Steve, and he built some kind of color printer. And Steve said, hey, what's in the box? And the guy said, it's a color printer, blah, blah, blah. This guy came in for Steve Jobs later that week, talked to pitch his product, and Steve said, oh, you don't have to pitch your product. Your product's already dead. I heard what it was, and it's not with our mission. Sorry, it's dead. Now, B, to your point, Steve was not a nice guy. I've heard, I have other stories that I've heard about. He was not nice. He was clear. Everyone knew what Apple stood for, just to your point. I'll give you another story, Bill Gates story. So Microsoft offered me five jobs in two years. The last job I was going to be product unit manager of their internet identity product. And the guy I was going to work for said, you're going to brief Bill Gates once a month. Most product unit managers brief him once a year. You're going to brief him once a month. And I thought... That's going to be awesome to be with Bill Gates once a month to sit with him. And I said to him, the guy's name was Robert. I said, Robert, that's going to be great. He said, no, it's not. He said, Bill Gates makes Steve Ballmer cry. He is, his vision was so broad around the industry and around Microsoft. And he was so incisive and determined to make Microsoft the thing. It's hard to be around Bill Gates. But I will tell you about Microsoft. They had an operating system. It was dying. They knew it was going to die because of the internet. They shifted focus to the internet. They've shifted focus several times, just changed the direction of the boat quickly. They did it again last week with Bing. Who uses Bing? Defining value. They define value. Exactly. They're like, that is the DNA of that company. Yes. 
we're gonna get we're coming up on time but i wanted to ask you this predictive question you know we like to bring people on smart people and ask like what do you think the future and because your background is in ai and just because you just mentioned microsoft and you just mentioned bing what is the defining value of generative ai oh that's a good question you've got the floor the defining value of generative ai boy generative ai is a double-edged sword um Someone asked me, I, I got interviewed by a, uh, a significant magazine the other day. They're doing a documentary on generative AI. And um, here's the, used it this way. I got to write this paper. I got to write this document. I don't know where to start. I'm going to talk to Jet, chat GPT for a minute and just see what chat GPT has and use it as a basis for me to start kind of riffing off of it's useful that's useful uh i was watching a show last night i think it was about deep fakes right so making president or some political figure or someone say something they didn't say okay that's scary here's the other scary here's the thing that's scarier now doing misinformation of news sources that say they saw that person do that deep fake. So now you now you have tons of information that validate that thing that wasn't true. Um, I think generative AI could be very positive in a bunch of stuff. And to the extent that it gets better as a replacement for a search engine to give me real data, um, I'm not sure we know uh, it's like Prometheus and fire how to control it yet. Coming from the investment lens, right? I, like that's the number one thing I'm getting. I'm getting so many proposals of, you know, invest in my AI company. I asked Tam about this. I was like, we need to actually figure out like, how would we even figure out which of these AI companies we would actually be interested in versus other ones, right? Because for, they don't have clear use cases, Right. Like, true. Like, so for instance, I saw another one last was about like trying to um, use AI to creative. So it's like, you know, figure out like the best creative to use or something like that. And I was just like, yeah, I was like, but at the same time, like, I can just look at my Google Analytics and see which one of these creatives did the best. I, I'm not sure if that's super useful to me. Right. For instance. And so having said that, how would you go about, you know, thinking about like, value which of these will actually have value it's like how would you go about defining or figuring out which of these ais is actually going to be a winner or like you know which one will actually do something that you know i think it goes back to the same the same thing i've been preaching it's like serve what value do you bring so i had a similar conversation to the one you were talking about a generative ai company that said and I actually think this might work. I don't know enough about the market, but the generative AI company that's came to me and said, again, we have a generative AI company that creates graphics with a similar theme for a company. So the next time you see the M&Ms, they're doing something a little different and a something a little different again. And that we can generate, that we know that people are doing this job manually today and we could, we could speed that job up by creating in versions of that ad that people could pick from and then do it. Or I listened to Rick was on a podcast with uh, Tim Ferriss listening to this the other day. And Tim Ferriss asked him, well, now there's generative AI. There's just tons and tons of music. Why isn't that good? And Rick Rubin said, 
I listen to music all the time and then I hear like a clip and then I vibe off of that. I do things for, for that. Or I, or, uh, I forgot which hip hop artist was like, it wasn't Jay-Z. It was, so, it was someone, you know, I can't remember who it was. He's just always listening to music to figure out what to sample. Right. And which is kind of the same thing I said about using it as the muse. Um, uh, using it as giving me things to look at in this case for this, this kind for investment, uh, how like, okay, that's a real market. People are doing real things. They're using generative AI to speed that process up. It's electricity and the internal combustion engine one that used to just be horse and horse and buggy. That's the way I would think about it. I would say one of the things I would say, there's a lot of like talk on the internet about they were making comparisons to the adoption rate of chat GPT versus that of crypto and how the explosive kind of adoption rate. I don't put crypto and uh, generative AI in the same bucket. AI for quite some time. My prediction on the future, it's still very short at this point, is if you look at AI as capability, the same way the internet is a capability, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, these are capability. It's enablement technology. And what it's going to allow a lot of people to do mm-hmm. is to create new solutions, a plethora. You're already seeing it be, right? All these decks coming in saying we're AI companies. There are going to be a lot of experiments that are come out, and then there's going to be some consolidation. There are going to be a lot of startups that are basically developing a feature that something like a larger company would then incorporate once they prove that point. But I, I do think that there's going to be a lot of a lot of good things coming out. Here's one question I want to ask. Uh, do you believe in the argument that generative AI is going to take away a lot of jobs? Well, I think it's going to change the economy. Which I'll, I'll give you an example. This is the classic example I always use is, how many elevator operators do you see? Back in the day, zero. There are zero. How many elevator operators do you see on that? Back in the day, you'd go in, There'd be there'd be an elevator operator. They would like slide the little metal gate. There would be they go to the Bradbury Building downtown LA. There's still a dude who does this. They had still with weird levers they would operate, right? There was some. I've seen zero elevator operators on the shine will operate elevator for food. The economy's created more jobs. If to the extent that that it creates new kinds of value, creates new kinds, people will lose their job and other jobs will be created. That is the bet of capitalism is that we're automating things and creating wealth and that wealth expands the economy. If you believe that, um, then the question is, is what are the macroeconomic effects? There's a transition where people lose the job they have before that wealth gets created, before they get sucked up into that. That's the, that's a societal task. How do you deal with the macroeconomic effects? So before we transition to our last question, the biggest thing for me with AI is that I really want to understand how they're going to do two things. One, ensure that they aren't copywriting, right? Because I have definitely seen pieces where someone's like, oh, I use this chat DPT. And I was like, wait, let me actually just go copy this. And it was actually specifically from another article. At the very least, chat GPT should be able to let this person know I've quoted or like whatever. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, and I happened to know that because I'd read the article because I was like, that sounds exactly like the thing that's said in this other article. Um, and then the second thing is, is the, the bias stuff, right? So it actually really is, you know, when you look at Dali, like if it, it has problems when it comes to ethnicity. So for instance, I was like, I am a black person holding a black baby. And it was very interesting to me how like each one of these images, 
they were not some cool images of black people, first of all. Like, you know, black people come in different shades, but these were people who, if you looked at them, they looked like they were white passing people. And I was just like, this is very interesting to me. They cannot seem to understand. I say, I am a black person because I was trying to create something for myself and my son. And so I do think that that's, those are two great examples, again, about what we were talking about earlier about having inclusive conversations. Right. When you try to bring lots of people into your conversations, you can build the most value in your product. I think that's something that general AI has still has to figure out how to do that, because like you need to bring in more people to, like, I think, handle this, because I'm sure that they don't necessarily have a lot of people who look like me who are asking that particular question. And if they could figure out how to get more of me in that room uh, who might ask that question, it could be an even better product faster. So I think that's a significant thing there. Now, having said that, we're to our last question. So this is always a very easy one. David, what you doing? What you want people to know about? Let, like, break it down to them. What, what do they need to know about you and, and where they can find you and all this other good stuff? Oh, great. Um, thanks. Thanks for that question. By the way, before I answer it, like, this has been super fun. I really enjoyed this. So, uh, yeah, no, this, is, this has been awesome. Um, so, look, in turn, as you said, does better products faster. We, we help technology companies figure out how to build products. And so there's four things we do. One is we'll go and look at product management engineering teams and think out and help come back and how, how to make them more effective. So we'll say, what is the strategy of the company? What is the, comp what is the technology product management team needs to do to build a strategy? How we'll get calls from CEOs where they'll say, I keep putting cap onto product management engineering and I'm not getting more, or we're just hitting scale and stuff that got us here. We cobbled this together, isn't going to get us there. Help, right? So we answer that question by doing these deep dives, I explain. That's the first thing we do. Oftentimes, companies will say to us, great, now you've given us the recipe that the diagnosis and the prescripts run this prescription. And so if they have a CTO or chief product officer, we'll coach them. That's a second service. If they don't have someone in the seat, we'll run a technology or a product management department in our business or both. We'll help bring the, the teams up to the next level, get them green. If it's green, yellow, and red on the things that they need to do, get them to green and everything, help hire someone behind. That's the third. So the first, the deep dive. The second is a coaching. If there's not someone there, we'll run the department, get them to get them to the next level, help hire someone. And the last one is for VCs, PE firms, M&A transactions with diligence on product management engineering. But we're all about how to get these teams aligned and effective in executing the strategy. So really simply, if you have a problem, you know, you have essentially three people on this podcast, depending on how you're trying to handle it, that can really help you knock it out of the park. And you know, like, as I, you know, tell Tam, I was like, I gave it to come on because my conversations with him were very delightful. And so I'm hoping that everyone also agrees and that you, David, and you will be introspective and ask really good questions and be inclusive, really make sure you're delivering value Thank you so much for listening to The Drops Podcast. We love having you. We love your feedback. Please do connect with us across social media. We are The Drops Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And we also have a great email, thedropspodcast at gmail.com. You can send in any questions that you have, and we definitely would love to answer them on the podcast. Feel free to ask just about anything because we have experienced a ton of different things. Again, thank you so much for listening to The Drops Podcast.